Coming up this hour, we're going to hit some headlines. Later in the hour, we're going to talk about words. And then we're joined by Jonathan Carswell, CEO of 10ofthose.com. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. So glad you're here, wherever here may be. Maybe you're uh, on Facebook, perusing the Facebook page, looking at the articles we post there. We'd love to hear from you over there. Maybe you're on Twitter or Instagram right now at Common Good Talk. Maybe you're listening via the podcast. While you're there, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, that helps us out a whole heap of a lot. I think that is the exact measurement, actually. One heap for every <laughs> subscription rating yes. and review so uh trying to trying to really up our heap numbers as as they say <laughs> no one says that um we're gonna we're gonna talk some headlines this is gonna be a little less newsy than usual you you were talking briefly about uh giuliani's hair dye i just saw the photo for the first time it's um, awesome that's a bummer that's a bummer <laughs> that's a funny bummer though there was a it was a good laugh I remember a buddy of mine, we, we played in a band together, and when he got his license, he uh, wanted to look real punk rock, so he dyed his hair like fire engine red, but it rained <laughs> on the way to the DMV, so his no. photo looks like just like blood streaking down his face, and you know, we were a bunch of dumb 16-year-old punk rockers. We were like, awesome! That looks so cool. It, he Every time he got pulled over, he ended up having to get out of the car because it just looked oh, no. insane. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so awesome. uh, let's dive into some of these headlines. We're going to wrap with a little more inspiration than we have with this uh, mm-hmm. first segment. But first, out of uh, Fox News, what's going on? Uh, yeah, this article out of uh, Fox News says uh, network newscasts avoid Governor Gavin Newsom dinner party controversy. But the bigger deal is here. What is that controversy? And and uh, you and I have talked often uh, over, especially the last couple of weeks, as states, as uh, you know, towns uh, lock down more and more because of COVID-19, uh, that one of the things that works against the leaders is when there's just blatant hypocrisy. And, and again, you can't expect these people to be perfect. But what you would like to believe is that those who are making the decisions are are adhering to all the same rules. And with that in mind, the other day, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California, uh, who is increasingly tightening the lockdown in California and, uh, you know, think about all the stories we've done about John MacArthur's church in California and all these other things. Uh, He attended a fancy dinner party for a birthday party and was there were pictures of him sitting at a full table, no masks uh, at a restaurant uh, called the French Laundry in the upscale restaurant in Napa Valley. And he has since come out and apologized, which is good. But you want to be like if you're in California and and you've got um, a a restaurant that's being shut down and then you see the guy who's shutting them down eating at a restaurant with no mask on. Uh, we deal with this in our own state. We talked about Governor Pritzker being out at the celebrations after uh, Joe Biden was declared victorious. Or the other day, there was an interview in which Governor Pritzker kind of at least hinted or said that he was planning to go to Florida for Thanksgiving until he got some blowback on that. Uh, I, I guess I would just put it this way. Uh, governors, uh, presidents, pastors, CEOs, the best, one of the best things you could do if you want your leadership to be followed is to show some consistency. And that seems to be lacking here. And it's kind of causing some of the problems that we're dealing with, with COVID-19 around these restrictions. Well, what I find extra interesting, Brian, you mentioned uh, the hypocrisy of it all, right? Uh, The Greek of the word hypocrisy means to wear a mask, which is hysterical. I can't believe I'm not seeing more like niche 
pastoral theology memes around that. Maybe, maybe I should make one in my. You should. My Your spare stuff time. you put up there kind of gets it gets shared all uh, over the that's place. That's probably why it's not a good idea for me to do one. Moving on, but still <laughs> speaking of, that's actually a pretty good segue. Still talking about COVID, but stepping uh-huh. into the pastoral realm. Uh, Pastor John Hagee, he recovered from COVID nineteen. Hooray! And then said some stuff that uh, maybe less hooray. What's going on there? Yeah, as you said, he was he had double pneumonia. He is 80 years old. Uh, and so uh, really, I'm sure there were probably moments during his COVID-19 time in the hospital where they probably didn't know if he was going to make it again, uh, 15 days in the hospital. And now he's back at their church at Cornerstone Church, I believe in Texas. And he said this. He said, I'm sitting in this chair today as a testimonial to the healing power of Jesus Christ. We have a vaccine. The name is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And he then prayed over America saying, let him sweep through this country and heal the righteous who dare to ask for it. Heal our church members, restore them rapidly. And and you hinted at this, like we want to celebrate that he is getting better and we want to celebrate that he has gotten to the point that he's out of the hospital. And we do want to acknowledge that uh, that God still uh, uh, still heals, and that's great. But but to kind of the name it and claim it, and to say uh, you know I prayed hard enough and God healed me. There's two hundred and fifty thousand other people who have died from this, uh, and you're kind of leaving those people going. Well, was it lack of faith in my loved one? Was it did we not pray hard enough? Do you have a special uh, connection to God? So I want to be like pray. Uh, but I, I, it always makes me uncomfortable when he's just declaring Jesus healed me. And it kind of implied in that is uh, too bad for some of you that he didn't heal you. So I, I don't know. I, just, I'm actually I'm less so uncomfortable with someone saying Jesus healed me than I am with someone saying Jesus is the vaccine. That's that mm-hmm. to me, the specificity of that language is part of not part of that's entirely what I find troubling and dangerous. In fact, Joe Cronin commented on our Facebook page. Uh, about this article, he said, faith is super important when you're sick, but to say Jesus is the, quote, vaccine is dangerous, especially when you're supposed to be shepherding so many people that I couldn't put it better. That's uh, that's my sentiments there. That's good. Which maybe that could be a whole other segment for another time, because there's a lot kind of wrapped up in there in terms of how we talk about healing and how that intersects with our faith. And I think that's it's an important conversation now uh, more than ever. It's another one out of Chicago here. I thought this was uh, fascinating. I'd love to know what you think. Chicago Church releases a beer for Advent and the end of the world. What's happening here? <laughs> the end of the world. That's funny. Uh, it says there was an accordion player. This is at Religious News talking about this mid-November evening in Chicago. Uh The Reverend Rebecca Anderson, co-pastor of Gilead Church in Chicago, had imagined the overall mood of the evening would be bittersweet, like sad clown or tiny apocalyptic carnival. But the dozen or so people massed and distance in the glow of the fire and twinkle lights were surprisingly cheery, engaging in greetings from afar. Uh, It's hard not to be joyful seeing friends face to face. And and the story goes on uh, to talk about. Uh, how this church here in Chicago released a beer for Advent and the end of the world, uh, and and so trying to do creative things. But uh, but there's I find some humor in this story. I do find some humor, although I'm sure there's there's some people that probably are have some problems with what they did. She said they didn't set out to be the beer brewing church. The pastors had envisioned storytelling church, and uh, yeah. So what do you think of this story? What do you think of this church? I uh, I think it's clever. I think we, I think you see a lot yeah. of churches trying different things in this season, and uh, yeah, my hat's off to you. I want to end with this. It's a post I saw a couple of days ago. It's actually from September 2019, but I just saw it 
passed around recently. And I'll, I'll just read it to close because it's not really a headline, obviously. But uh, to me, I, this is this is the kind of tone that I hope to set even for the rest of today and the rest of the show. I just think um, things like this sort of stop me in my tracks when I'm doom scrolling all the negativity and all the backbiting and all the muckraking and all that. And so here's here's mm-hmm. what the post says from Sebastian Copeland. Uh, in Gene Edward Smith's biography of George W. Bush, uh, he wrote about what President Bush thought of President-elect Obama during the transition period. On page 650, it states, As part of the presidential transition, Barack Obama asked Bush if it would be possible for him to meet all the ex-presidents. Bush was happy to oblige and organized a White House luncheon in the Oval Office on January 7th. Bush and Obama were joined by Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and George H.W. Bush. There's a photo attached, and it's amazing. The luncheon lasted over two hours. Each former president ordered his lunch a la carte from the White House mess, and the tone was uh, convivial and friendly. All the gentlemen here understand both the pressures and possibilities of this office, said Obama before the meeting. For me to have the opportunity to get advice, good counsel, and fellowship with these individuals is extraordinary, and I just want to thank the president for hosting us. Bush was equally effusive. We want you to succeed, he replied. Whether we're Democrat or Republican, we care deeply about this country. And to the extent that we can look forward to sharing our experiences with you, all of us who have served in this office understand that the office transcends the individual. I don't have any kind of additional commentary, uh, at least not at this time. But I did want to just kind of share that because (laughs) photos like these, comments like these to me are a reminder that uh, this kind of civility, I think, I think... Is we still possible. It. Yeah. And it's <laughs> and we do miss it. Yeah. It's certainly something worth leaning towards that. And everything else is up on our Facebook page. And we would love to know what you think. Coming up next, though, out of the Washington Post, what Obama gets right and wrong about the media. That's coming up next year in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We have some wacky holidays today, Brian. I'm not going to I'm not going to share them now. I'm going to. Just, I just want to whet your appetite. Just it is. It's a weird one. It's a weird one today. Even even my wife was like, "Who's who's making these up? Like who decides what is or isn't a holiday?" And I I said, "It's it's the media," and just shook my fist towards the ceiling. <laughs> it's the media. And, and I, it's them. And I confused my uh, confused my children. But speaking of media, though, that was a segue. I found this article from uh, Washington Post fascinating. And I know that some, you know, people, some, someone might turn us off right now just simply because I mentioned the name Obama. Others might be leaning yep. in because I'm saying Obama. The headline reads, what Obama gets right and very wrong about the media, which, of course, is a massive subject. It's a massive topic, but it's one I don't know that we've had a week where we've not talked at length about the media in some way, mm-hmm. shape or form. And uh, I think that's become something that you and I over time have realized more and more how important it is for us to talk about, but also how uh, overwhelming, how all-consuming conversations around the media can also become. And so I, I thought this this angle, specific, specifically about the Washington Post towards Obama, was fascinating. So you want to uh, want to get us into it a little bit? Yeah, he's promoting Barack Obama. President Obama's promoting his new memoir, which, by right. the way, that guy's written. He's written a lot of memoirs. <laughs> it keeps working for him. Seriously, uh, He said this, a couple different quotes. He said, I come out of this book very worried about the degree to which we do not have a common baseline of fact and a common story. He later said, we don't have a Walter Cronkite describing the tragedy of Kennedy's assassination, but also saying to supporters and detractors alike of the Vietnam War that this is not going to go the way the generals in the White House are telling us. And in an interview with 60 Minutes, uh, he said uh, we uh, he said about local journalism, he said it's where we have to start in terms of rebuilding the social trust we need for democracy to work. So he's saying the key is local journalism. 
and she goes on to write, I fully agree. She talks about her book about this. Uh, more than 2,000 American newspapers have gone out of business in just the last 15 years, leaving entire regions without reliable sources of news. And uh, Obama, she says, takes a stab at what's the answer. We have to work at a local level. But now she's going to go and say, but in her opinion, uh, Barack Obama and his administration were part of the problem back in the day. And you might ask why. And she says, when Obama entered the White House, he promised a more transparent administration. He did not deliver. Hmm. Uh, His administration set records for stonewalling or rejecting the freedom of information requests. Uh, Instead, he largely engaged in what I call, it says, transparency light. Later on, it says, but that wasn't the worst of it. The Obama administration repeatedly used an obscure century-old federal statute, the Espionage Act, to pursue government sources who provided information to journalists. His Justice Department's war on leakers was, in the words of one editor, the most aggressive I've seen since the Nixon administration. It says, but maybe worst of all, uh, his administration went after a Fox News reporter using security badge access records to access records to track his comings and goings at the State Department. Uh, And so the author continues to go on about kind of the problems that were in the Trump administration and the Obama administration. And so she said uh, she ends this way. Uh, I'm glad that Obama sees the mess we're in now, and I heartily agree with his emphasis on local journalism and the way rampant misinformation is damaging our democracy. But I haven't forgotten what happened when he was in charge. This is Margaret Sullivan at The Washington Post. And so many things come out of this about the media and other things. But it also feels like what we talked about in the you know, just earlier in this show and what we've been talking about is uh a lot of times people don't care what you say uh, if it doesn't match up with what you've done or are doing. And uh, that seems to be her problem here. Now, Washington Post, probably a little bit skewed, uh, but uh, it is uh, very interesting that she's saying uh, that President Obama is coming out here and saying, well, this is what we need in the media. It must be more local, more transparent. This is what we need. And she's saying uh, that wasn't what happened under your administration. So I, it's, a, it's an interesting take here. I didn't know this stuff about his administration and others for one. Well, part of what I found interesting about this article in particular was how it could apply to any level of leadership. And you and I are biased because we're both pastors, but especially the last couple of years we've had just even here in Chicago and to think about how many times we've heard leaders mm-hmm. uh, up front on stages with microphones talk about things like transparency, the importance of accountability, of integrity, and then come to find out there was a lot of that lacking in their own that's life. Right. And I thought, gosh, what what an interesting, I know that's not necessarily the point of this article, but it, it just got the cranks turning for me that it's not just that pastors on occasion will have a congressional meeting and say, hey, also accountability matters or transparency matters. That's often kind of interwoven into every week they're in front of people. So it's like, the mess, you know, even the phrase that she uses here, transparency light. <laughs> I think that there's, mm-hmm. I heard a pastor years ago talk about uh, how he uses, or really in a lot of ways manipulates um, controlled vulnerability is what he called it, where mm. I I do give just a an inch of true vulnerability in a sermon, but it's most it's more often uh, intended to distract from the real vulnerability. So get a little emotional about this thing in order to like throw people off the trail a little bit. And I thought, <laughs> well, that's, nefarious but like yes you know much of what she's sort of accusing obama of doing that's hey i believed in what he was saying we should be doing and now in hindsight saying what needs to be happening now but are you holding yourself to that same standard and i think that's a question that everyone in leadership everywhere needs to ask regardless but in particular 
people of faith, Christian leaders, pastors. I just think it's it's all the more important that if you're if you're gonna make the effort to to say things like this in front of people, you need to absolutely be certain that you're also living that in your life. And I think we're just seeing more and more, you know, titans by at least you know human metrics. They just keep falling because you yeah. realize oh, what they were saying on social media or from stages was not actually happening in their marriages and their families and in their ministries. And I think, I don't know, for such a time as this, man, you, you add on top of that, the things that we've been reading about Christians being uh, some of some of the worst offenders of the spread of misinformation and conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. Mm-hmm. Man, I, I tweeted something like this a couple of days ago. How will people believe us if we say Jesus is alive, but we're not even willing to fact check the stuff that we're posting? Like that that disparity to me is what I think a lot of the world just finds yeah. unnerving. Yeah. I found out today about, uh, I was talking to somebody and he said, he was telling me about somebody that we knew not, doesn't go to my church or nothing like that, but somebody that we mutually knew. And he said, Oh, he's a full fledged believer in Q in like Q and mm. I was like, Oh my gosh. Mm. And, uh, yeah, you know, this article is interesting in the sense that it says a lot of what we see with president Trump and people have problem, you know, fake news and, and attacking the media, uh, kind of is him, uh, taking further what what kind of started with some in the Obama administration. But man, I think you're right on right here about uh, one of the more disheartening things and the age that we live in now of social media, uh, things don't go away, right? We have a screenshot of something you said, or you have a tweet about something that you said. And when there's this lack of consistency, and we're not going to be perfect, but you know, sure. the world we live in, when pastors have this lack of consistency, that's kind of a do as I say, not as I do. I don't think, not that do as I say, not as I do ever worked, but a lot of times in the past, sadly, people didn't know what you did. Right. Uh, and that's often the case now. And do as I say, not as I do is going to rip away your credibility and it should rip away your credibility. And like you said, we've seen that in the church world. We see that in politics, in business. And uh, it's weird how this keeps coming up, but it's challenged me. And I think it should challenge all of us to say, uh, you know what, live a life of integrity and of consistency more than just kind of being a loud person, kind of always yelling and saying, this is what people should be doing. First, ask yourself, is that what I'm doing? Again, not perfectly. We're all going to mess up. You, you admit when you make mistakes, but we have too many people right now probably go and live, uh, do as I say, not as I do. And especially for the Christ follower, that is not a helpful way to live. Yeah. And if you want to take a deeper dive on the topic of integrity, by the way, we've had him on the show. John Blumberg wrote a wonderful book mm-hmm. called Return on integrity. You can just type that into Google or you can visit BlumbergROI.com because he takes an even deeper dive into not only what integrity is, but why it's so integral. It's not just being consistent with your public and private life. It's so much more intertwined than that. And we were talking about it in the first segment with Governor Newsom and some of how people are responding now to hidden and blatant hypocrisy. And I think uh, I think that's a that's going to end up being an evergreen topic, not mm-hmm. just for the show, but I think in culture in general. Coming up next, though, uh, CEO of a wonderful ministry, 10ofthose.com, Jonathan Carswell is going to be joining us. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Ryan Fromm. You can find us a whole smattering of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribing, rating, reviewing helps us and the show out a ton. So any level of interaction there is greatly appreciated. And we are thrilled to have back on the show, CEO of 10 dot com, Jonathan Carswell. Welcome back to the show, sir. 
Thank you so much. Great to be great to be back. It means you've forgiven me or forgotten me. So <laughs> well, we'll get into that later in the conversation. But uh, would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, well, I hope people can understand me. I'm a Brit uh, on, on this side of the pond. Um, I'm from a place called Yorkshire uh, in England, but I work for this ministry, tenofos.com, which is uh, passionate about getting good books into the hands of as many people as possible. So uh, we handpick the best resources, the best books from across the publishers, and then we discount them so that more can go out. And we have a specific passion and, uh, and desire to see people who don't yet know Jesus for themselves mm. to discover him through, through the books and resources that we make available. So that's what we do. And uh, yeah. uh, it's, it's my pleasure to be in Chicago as a, as a tourist, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan, we, we do love the accent. So, uh, you know, we live in a day and age where less people are reading or so we hear, you know, a lot more mm. tweeting and stuff like that. So what, what is, in your opinion, the power of a book? Why is it still so important that people uh, take the time to be reading books, in your opinion? Well, it's funny that God's put me in this uh, job because I'm dyslexic. So I find reading mm-hmm. really hard work and, and reading definitely takes a discipline for, for, for me and for, for many. Um, I think books can, can play a really key part in um, Christian discipleship, though, because books can, can say things that perhaps pastors or friends or mentors can't say uh, sometimes in a way that they can't say it. They can, books can go to places that often friends or or, or pastors or, or disciples can't go. So, you know, when I'm on a commute uh, on the train, say, or I go on my vacation, I can't bring my pastor with me, but but I can because I can bring a book with me. So it can say things, it can go place, go places, and also at times that um, that often a friend can't be. So. When I when I'm sat in bed in in the middle of the night and I and I'm not able to sleep, I can open up a book and and be hearing good things that are going to um, point me to the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, that's for me what books are about. Are they going to help me um, learn more about the Lord Jesus? Not just in an academic, um, cerebral way, but in a in a life changing way. And I don't mean to kind of overstate that. I think Christian books that hold to the Bible and make much of Jesus can change your life. I became a Christian when I was 16 um, in, uh, on a sports camp in, in the Netherlands. And I had never read a book before for, for myself. Even at, at school, I'd just watch the videos and, uh, and then write the essay on it. But, but yeah, I, I became a Christian and began reading books. I read the first book I ever read was this um, biography of Hudson Taylor, who, who mm. went to China. He famously said, if I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all to China. Wow. Now, that even just that little line from that book, it stuck with me and it's made an impact in my life. And I think when books are doing that, they can play a key role. I think often in reading, people can think, oh, I'm, I'm a slow reader or I've bought some books and I haven't yet finished it. <laughs> I mean, we've all got that pile by our mm-hmm. bedside that if it fell over, could do some damage type thing. But <laughs> I think books, whether we read a chapter or a paragraph or even a sentence can play such a key role. I'll never forget reading the, um, again, another biography of, of um, Corrie Ten Boom, The Hiding Place. Mm-hmm. Uh, in it, um, I may have even mentioned this last time I was on the show. I don't know. She, she has this line where she's struggling and she says, uh, her sister says to her, Corrie, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. See, mm-hmm. that one line, what truth is packed into that line 
it was worth the slog of reading that book right. to, to have that truth of actually God is deeper than our biggest problems. So if you're reading a book that is making much of Jesus, hmm. it's worth the effort. Uh, just one final thing on that. I'd say don't feel you have to read for hours and hours uh, at a time. If you read on average for 15 minutes a day, you'll read 20 books a year. Wow. Now I try wow. and read the coloring books and then you can get 25 <laughs> books. Too. But you know, just 15 minutes a day, 20 books in a lifetime, you could do a thousand books. That mm. is, that's going to incredibly um, impact your, your spiritual yep. life. I would say. I love that. I actually have a, a problem. Maybe you can help me with off air where like, if I travel somewhere, I always bring like nine books and read none of them. And I, <laughs> I actually just came across a word. I thought of you for two reasons. One, it was from the BBC. So obvious, but then the, <laughs> okay. the word is Sundoku and it's the art of buying books and never reading them. And I didn't know there was an actual word that for that. Today too. Yeah. I, I, did, I think I, that on Twitter, yeah. Well, what I would encourage you with this, if I may, for especially near Christmas, give the books away because mm. that is a great way of um, releasing yourself from the guilt of having the books that you've bought but not yet read. Mm -hmm. But I think as as disciple disi uh, disciples uh, of Christ and people who want to be disciple makers, books yeah. play a huge role yeah. in discipleship. So. Give them away. Is there a younger Christian that you know is uh, is just kind of starting out in their Christian faith? Give them a book that can play a key role. Your next door neighbor who isn't yet a Christian, wouldn't it be great to introduce them to Jesus this Christmas? Hmm. You could do that with a little book. So I, I appreciate I'm a bookseller and so want people to, uh, to, to, as it were, get rid of their books so they can get <laughs> some more. But I really think um, giving books away can play a key part in discipleship, and that might help your guilt levels too. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan, as we near Christmas here, I, I, uh, are there two or three books that you want to encourage people? Hey, this is a great one. This was formational in my life. Either read this book or give this one as a gift. What might be two or three books that you could recommend? Well, I would absolutely say if you're going to be giving gifts away this Christmas, which no doubt we we will be, Make sure you give something that's going to point to Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, to, to those people that are around you that don't yet know, know him. You have a unique circle of friends that if you're not telling them about the Lord Jesus, who will? Mm -hmm. And so whether that's a tract or a booklet in the Christmas card, and I think Christmas cards this year more than any are going to be important because loneliness and isolation is bigger than it's ever been before. Mm -hmm. Take the time to write a handwritten note to those that you know who are isolated, lonely, and, uh, and locked down, because mm -hmm. that could play a, a great role in introducing them to the love of, of Christ and include a booklet mm -hmm. or, or a tract or something uh, along those lines. That's great. I, I, um, in terms of books, yeah, sorry, go, yeah, go ahead. No, please, please, recommendations. We love them. Well, in terms of books, there's one that I think is very, uh, very useful. Uh, it's called Four Kinds of Christmas by Glenn Scrivener. And it looks at sort of four approaches that people have to Christmas. It's a very sort of winsome, lighthearted, but, um, but clear introduction to, uh, to the Christmas message. For, for kids, I think it's a great opportunity to give kids uh, books this, uh, this Christmas. There's one called When Santa Learned the Gospel. Just Google it. Mm -hmm. Get it from wherever you want. Tenofthose.com, sell it, but get it from wherever you wherever you can when santa learned the gospel it's a great introduction to the gospel for, for kids and then finally there's one called the greatest gift 
again, a, a short Christmas book uh, that uh, that might just introduce um, people to Jesus this Christmas. E- easy ones to give away, really. I love that. Our guest today has been Jonathan Carswell is the CEO of 10ofthose.com. Again, that's 10ofthose.com. I cannot encourage you enough. Go to the website, check out their ministry. You guys are doing such great work in the world. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Bless you. Thank you so much for having me again. It's our pleasure. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Welcome to the last nice day of the year. I'm, I'm convinced of it. I don't, did you go outside at all today? You're, you're not like me. You don't live in the basement like I do. No, I not only did I go outside, I actually had a lunch meeting and we ate outside today because it was Ugh. like, wait, we can't eat inside. But today, maybe. And it was nice. It was enjoyable. Ugh. I I made the mistake of, you know, again, because I'm in the basement all day long, I needed to have a little bit of lunch. And I was like, oh, I'm going to eat it outside. And we just we had like a like a Wizard of Oz level twister, just like ripping through <laughs> and like my bread and lettuce is going everywhere. I was like, this isn't as relaxing as I thought it would be. Anywho, I will, gi- I will give you some, uh, hopefully some hope here. I do believe it's supposed to be close to this nice tomorrow. So I think you might have one more opportunity before it turns on us this week. Oh, you think so? Where, where are you seeing this, Brian? That's what my wife told me from. She was looking at the Weather Channel app. I would like to at least believe this. I mean, I believe that you want to believe this. I'll uh, I'll concede that much. That's as far okay. as I'll go. Uh, all right. So you can find us online. Just Google us and any interaction or sharing or tweeting is super duper helpful. I love words. Probably too much, to be honest. In fact, one of the games yeah. that I used to play with my dad and my grandma when I would come home from college, the three of us would sit around and we would just share one at a time, a new word we learned, and then the other two would have to guess its meaning, and then we all had dictionaries in front of us, and then we would, like, that's legitimately how we would spend it. It was so much fun, and to do it with my dad and my grandma was such a blast, but one of the things that I've really been interested for some reason the last couple of years, maybe this show corresponds with that, is the idea of contronyms. I don't think it's a word I knew until just a few years ago. Contronyms, they're words that are exactly the same, same spelling, same pronunciation, Mm -hmm. And they have two, not just two different meanings, but two opposite meanings, two opposing meanings. And they're yep. fascinating. So this whole segment, if there's like a segment that you're looking to like, you know, run some errands or. Uh, this is it. We're going to enjoy this one. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a blast. But I just I'm fascinated in words. And this list is fascinating. If we have time to get to it, there's another list. It's 38 wonderful words with no English equivalent. That stuff always fascinates me. But I want I think contronyms are interesting. So I don't have a, a whole agenda for how this is going to go you want to just pick one that you find funny yeah i just we could do them all sometimes we need to come up for air from covid and politics <laughs> yeah and no kidding church scandals and stuff so uh-huh. I, I i i will not apologize for these segments <laughs> uh, the first one the first contronym it gives us is sanction so sanction can mean give official permission or approval of uh for so an action or conversely mean impose a penalty on so it could be give permission <sighs> Or impose a penalty. And again, I never think of these. And then you read these, you're like, oh my gosh, these are so true. That one's sanctioned. So, yeah, here's one that comes up in conversation a lot oversight. It's the noun form of two verbs with contrary meanings oversee and overlook. <sighs> oversee from Old English or fusion or look at from above means supervise. Latin for the same thing, super over plus videre to see. Overlook usually means the opposite, to fail to see or observe, to pass over without noticing, to disregard or ignore. That's when I swap out that word in emails all the time because whenever I read it back, I think, oh, it's confusing exactly <laughs> what I'm asking for here. <laughs> That's so true. The next one is left can either mean 
uh, remaining or departed. If the gentlemen have withdrawn to the drawing room for after dinner cigars, who's left? <laughs> the gentlemen have left and the ladies are left. That's, really <laughs> That's so maddening. Here's one of the new ones that I, I just recently thought of. Dust, along with the next two words, is a noun turned into a verb, meaning either to add or to remove the thing in question. Only the context will tell you which it is. When you dust, are you applying dust or removing it? It depends whether you're <laughs> dusting the crops or the furniture. That's so true. How does anyone learn this language? It's so funny. Number five is seed can also go either way. If you right. seed the lawn, you add seeds. But if you seed a tomato, you remove the seeds. Oh, my <laughs> These goodness. are funny. I really do like all of these. I'm glad we're just going through them. Uh, stone is another verb to use with caution. You can stone some peaches, but please don't stone your neighbor, even if he says he likes to get stoned. <laughs> uh, the word trim as a verb predates the noun, but it can also mean either adding or taking away. Mm-hmm. Arising from Old English, a uh, word meaning to make firm or strong, to settle a range, trim can, came to mean to prepare, to make ready. Uh, depending on who or what uh, was being readied, it could mean either uh, one of two contradictory things, to decorate something with ribbons, laces, or the like, to give it a finished appearance, or to cut off the outgrowth or irregularities. And the context doesn't always make it clear. If you're trimming the tree, are you using tinsel or a chainsaw? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is the million-dollar question. I'm going to skip down to some of my other favorites that I haven't thought of. Fast can mean moving rapidly, as in running fast, or fixed, unmoving, as in holding fast, which is a <laughs> phrase that shows up in Christian circles a lot. If colors are fast, they will not run. The meaning firm, steadfast came first. The adverb took on the sense strongly, vigorously, which evolved into quickly, a meaning that has spread to the adjective. I just even find the etymology of these words interesting and how it's like yeah. over time, like this is how it started. But by now it means something completely different. It's actually the more common use of it. Language is so weird. I love this one of resign. It says res- works as a contronym only in writing. And I've struggled with this one. That's why I want to do this one. This time we have homographs, but not homophones. Resign, meaning to quit, is spelled the same as resign, meaning to sign up again. But mm-hmm. it's just pronounced differently. I struggle with those so much. Like I Clearly, <laughs> I'm spelling that wrong, I think. All right. So there's a couple others that I think are fascinating. Uh, Weather can mean to withstand or come safely through, as in the company weathered the recession. Or it can mean to be worn away. The rock was weathered. The next one they have listed is screen, which can mean to show, like a movie, or to hide, like an unsightly view. Like how... Were we just had a shortage of word combinations? Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like it just seems, that just seems unbelievable to me. Any, any others jump out at you? I like that one right there. To clip can mean to bind together. So to clip something together or to separate. To mm-hmm. cut is to clip. And uh, yet go can mean to proceed, but can also mean to give out or to fail. Or, uh, yeah, these are so good, man. Uh, <laughs> I thought this fight one was interesting. Like they said, fight can be interpreted three ways. He fought with his mother-in-law could mean they argued. They served together in the war. Or he used the old battle axe as a weapon, thanks to linguistic professor Robert Hertz for this idea. So fight with, meaning you and I are in an argument, or we fought side to side against an enemy, or Uh, I actually used you as the item with which I was fighting, which is maddening, if you ask me. (laughs) Uh, 
even like simple words like peer, peer is a person of equal status, but some peers are more equal than others, like the members of the peerage, which is the British or the Irish nobility. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, these are good. These are good. One, I'm glad you brought this to our perspective. There's term. one swear word in there, which has been edited. Just fair warning for uh, yes. our more sensitive readers. Anyway, like both of these are up on our Facebook page, and I don't expect there to be a, a lot of controversy. Is there any any in the uh, wonderful words with no English equivalent <laughs> that jump out of you? Uh, except that I can't pronounce most of these, right, but right. people who like words, you should go talk. I like number three just because it sounds funny from the Scots. It's The, the word is turtle. <laughs> the, uh, the word for that uh, panicky hesitation just before you have to introduce someone whose name you can't quite remember. That I'm is the story of that. being a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> I turtle all the time as a pastor. <laughs> Yeah, you might want to you might want to brace somebody before you actually try to. This is the other thing about words, and then we'll wrap up. But like, don't you feel that if you ever want to like in your reading, if you come across a word, you're like, yes, that perfectly explains what I was thinking. But there's That's no way to like introduce it without yes. sometimes feeling like a total snob. Do you have that same problem? Yes, yes. And these this list, I would encourage people to look at this second list because the descriptions of these words, every one of these I'm reading going, yep, I, that ha- yep, that happens to me all the time. And you're like, yeah, we don't have a word for that. And these other countries, these other uh, dialects have specific words for these things. That's a fascinating list too, that one. I, I find them interesting and you may not, and that is completely okay. But uh, like always, that is up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think over the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show show and with that our first hour is in the books but coming up next and fair warning this one might be a bit of a tearjerker rachel held evans father on his daughter's final days and the ongoing impact of her life that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life coming up this hour we're going to hear from david dark andy stanley and a little bit from rachel held evans father you're listening to the common Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. If you want to find us, there's a couple of places you can, you can do that on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can weigh in there. Or you can send us a private message if you have ideas for future shows or topics or angles. That is all fair game there. Also, Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. We also have an AM 1160 app, which is wonderful. And then last but certainly not least, you can find our podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. And every subscription, every rating, every review, every tweet and share and text, that all helps us out a bunch. So if you wouldn't mind, it's kind of the season, right? Mm-hmm. Tis the season to give back to your favorite radio show or podcast. That's free. You can do that for free, right? Yeah. I mean, that's Am I making a strong enough case for you, Brian? I, you've I, you've bribed people in the past, so I'm assuming this isn't. Uh, I mean, I've tried. I tried jewels in heaven, and people didn't go for that. So I don't know mm. what else we can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they're not if they're not biting at jewels in heaven, like, what chance do we have? My Man. goodness. All right, maybe I'll, I'll work that in sometime later. Um, it is pretty wild because this feels like a long time ago, but we have talked about this on the show. Rachel Held Evans. Um, author and speaker and writer and certainly controversial in a number of circles. Um, but pretty hard to deny that was in a lot of ways for a lot of people, a real trailblazer mm-hmm. and certainly someone that, you know, it was odd because she had such a presence on Twitter. So to, so to almost kind of watch, uh, like I, I remember seeing her final tweet. Yeah. Not having any sense at all that it was going to be her final tweet. Like it was just, it was, it was lighthearted and it was, 
you know, it just sounded like her. So it all felt so surreal. But uh, you were talking about this yesterday off air that her father actually gave an interview kind of sharing a bit about not only her final days, but the, the ongoing impact of her life. And uh, I just, I found it, I found it beautiful and heart wrenching and, and everything in between. So do you want to, uh, you want to kind of give us a 30,000 foot look on this? Yeah. As you said, Rachel Held Evans died at the age of 37. And again, if you're not aware of her, she's a very popular author and blogger and uh, she, she really stirred the pot for a lot of people. So therefore, right. Some people loved her and other people, you know, called her a heretic and everything in between. Uh, and she died suddenly. Uh, it says here in the article, a simple and unforeseen allergic reaction to medication, which caused st- seizures, had to put her in a coma and from which she never recovered and uh, just kind of out of the blue. And uh, and so her dad, who I've never heard from, and her dad did an interview on the deck of the house that uh, Rachel Evans held Evans and her husband were building and now live in. He lives in. Um, and, and I didn't know her dad is a professor of Christian mm-hmm. studies at Bryan College. And and that's also interesting because he speaks in here about, you know, he is, you know, Bryan College's relatively conservative theological place. He probably is as well. And having a, a daughter who is very um, uh, progressive in her theology and just kind of blazing the trail, as you said, and he says some beautiful things in here as a dad, like, uh, you know what? That was her thing to do. And I, I supported her. I was there with her. He talks about her writing that she had to write. Uh, and uh, and the hard part for me was reading at the end as a dad, uh, just what it's been like since then. Um, he says, I remember realizing she wasn't going to make it. I can remember crying out that I'm not going to let Satan steal my faith. This vow has guided Evan's father when the medical team of experts said that there was nothing they could do, that they had tried everything and that they were perplexed. Uh, He said, on one hand, you love hearing the words and reading the letters. On the others, you're still sad because she's not here. Uh, He talks about Rachel Held Evans' uh, husband, Dan, how he's doing. And then he just says this, uh, I don't think the pain will ever go away, but that's okay, isn't it? Sitting on the deck overlooking the hills, Held says he has decided to trust God in the dying season and in all the living seasons to come. Has he ever asked why God took his daughter? Shaking his head, Held says, even if answered, would it make, uh, it would not make sense. And uh, I just found this interview uh, to be poignant. Like I thought I'd read it and like learn some stuff about her, this, but, but instead to see the heart of a dad, um, who lost one of his daughters when she was 37 and just uh, in, in a tragic kind of surprising way. Uh, I found myself really sad and, and moved reading this article as just, you know, a, a dad myself of daughters and a son and just found myself just, just, you could just sense the heartbreak after a year and a half. And you know what else it reminded me in is, you know what, when people pass away, naturally everybody rallies around them and you're just there for them. But then your life goes on, other people's life goes on, but the people closest to the person who passed away, uh, their life moves on, but it's never the same. And you could just hear the ache of loss here. And so I found this to be really moving, uh, not just about a quote unquote famous person in the in the Christian world, but more so just as a grieving dad and uh, giving a window into what that grief looks like. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering too if there's, based on what he's saying, like lessons for us. Like he he speaks a lot of sort of her unwavering commitment to her convictions and ideals, how 
She always seemed to kind of downplay any level of success she achieved where, you know, he would be really amped for her and she would say, ah, it's not, it's not that big a deal. Like, are there things as we kind of look back and remember her life and her legacy that you think you would encourage as a father, as a pastor, like, Hey, maybe these are things that we can all grapple with. These are things that we would all do well to remember, you know, in this most bizarre of years and this most bizarre of times, like are there things in his responses as he kind of grieved and processed that, that stood out to you? Yeah, it's this, um, you know, I, I think oftentimes we think that the, the S the, um, the presence of pain means the removal of God, right? Like God's not, if, if I'm struggling, God must be gone. He must've just decided, uh, to let it go. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, he says, I don't think that the pain will ever go away. That's okay. Even if God answered, but he said, I'm not going to let this steal my faith. It's there's, there is that moment of in the midst of so much pain, of going, okay, I'm either going to rely on God and and hang on my faith, or I'm going to run the other way. And 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 I was really touched by this living, breathing example of a man who just said, you know what, it's it's literally a choice that I had to make, uh, even right after she died. Of going, I'm I'm going to rely on my faith. I'm not going to let Satan steal my faith. He said, uh, because that seems easier said than done, right? It seems like yeah. it would be so easy just to go you know, God, where were you? I prayed, uh, you must not be God, or you must not be strong enough, or you must have turned your back on me. Therefore I'm out of here. And, uh, and so I, it was sadly inspiring to read of a man who said, you know what, even on the night my daughter died, this is what I said. This is what I prayed Mm -hmm. and made that choice. Uh, and that choice is like I said, easier said than done. So as you read this as a dad, as a pastor, what, what was your takeaway from it? Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily know that I have a, a takeaway, which I think is okay. I think that's maybe almost the point. Like I think so so often we we want there to be some nugget or some application or some right pithy truism or you know, sometimes even just allowing yourself to enter into the story of someone maybe you agreed with, maybe you just didn't agree with, even just knowing the the differences between their personal theologies and the level of support um and love and affection, which of course, you know, plenty of people might be saying, well, yeah, obviously it's his daughter, but that's not always the case. Often Mm -hmm. differences of theology, especially chasms this wide can like rip families apart. And uh, this, this model, this example of not only how, how he explains they navigated their differences, but also the ways that he's choosing to honor her now, I think are really significant. And I think, and again, he, he owns it a couple of times. Like this grief isn't, it's not ever going to go away. um, But I don't know, kind of walking us through a little bit what that process has been like for him and the ways that he could affirm his daughter and continues to, because I'm, I'm sure there's stuff that she's written and said that he's like, I still, I still can't bring myself to agree with that point of doctrine, but I, it's not going to stop me from, from honoring her, from remembering her legacy. And uh, yeah, I, I did. I'm with you. I found that uh, incredibly moving at the very least and something that was refreshing, I guess, to read in the midst of a lot of, a lot of back and forth, a lot of finger pointing nowadays, you know, now more than ever, it seems. And I would encourage you to read it, even if you don't even know who Rachel Held Evans is. I think that would be a, yeah. an encouraging read. That's about our Facebook page, as always, and you can you can weigh in there. Coming up next, an article that we mentioned a couple of times last week. Karen Swallow Pryor referenced it in our interview last Friday by David Dark. It's from uh, America, the Jesuit Review. Why are Republicans sticking with Trump? He says peer pressure and we're all susceptible to it. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You know the drill. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. Just Google our names and The Common Good, and you have maybe a 60-40 chance of finding us, which is, you know, those could be worse odds. Either way, any interaction, any sharing or tweeting or subscribing or rating, reviewing, all of that, it seems uh, it seems minimal, but it helps us out a whole bunch. And uh, our hats off to the many of you who have already done that. Thank you so much for your support, uh, David Dark. He's someone I don't know that we've ever actually done a David Dark article on the show, but we've certainly referenced him before. And uh, Karen Swallow Pryor and Tish Harrison Warren they they both were mentioning this article last week, and I didn't I didn't have a spot for it in, until today. So this and the next segment are going to tackle politics a little bit from two different perspectives. But I, I found I found this to be really interesting. And again, you know, we say this every day. Brian and I don't agree wholesale with every word that we read. Sometimes we don't agree with an entire article outright. Um, but I do think that David Dark is someone he's a bit of a provocateur. He's very smart, whether you agree with him or not. And I think asks really, really good questions. I feel like now is just uh, an excellent time for us to get better at asking questions when everyone's, you know, sort of sure that they're right all the time. So here's the headline. Why are Republicans sticking with Trump? Peer pressure, and we're all susceptible to it. What's going on here, Brad? Yeah, so if you check this out on our Facebook page, you can read the beginning. He tells a a pretty funny story about a time he found himself at a Saturday Night Live after party. But later on, as he's reflecting upon that story, he says a story about the alluring currency of access and most of all, deferential fear at work among uh, allegedly powerful people. Peer pressure, Patty Smith once remarked, is forever. I believe we have seen this proverb proven repeatedly each and every day in a cascade of new items. Consider this. Go back to October 2016 with the now famous Access Hollywood tapes with uh, President Trump. Uh, He explained, when you're a star, they let you do it. For a day or two, his status as the standard bearer of the Republican Party was in doubt. Paul Ryan disinvited him from a campaign rally. Mike and Karen Pence went radio silent. Difficult decisions confronted the GOP brand. Surely this was a deal breaker. How would the campaign or anyone associated it continue? Uh, There were emerging indicators, however, of a power dynamic that seemed to counsel against decoupling. Mr. Ryan discovered that absent Mr. Trump, he was particularly booed. He was practically booed off the stage at his own rally. Uh, Mr. Trump, in an impromptu news conference arranged by Steve Bannon on the night of the second debate, they were shocked to discover Mr. Trump seated with women who had accused Bill Clinton of sexual misconduct. Uh, At first blush, it was a strange sight, but it has certain intuitive logic. Yes, Donald Trump was an unrepentant sexual assailant, but behold, these women who had been treated like pariahs for years, but whose allegations against Bill Clinton uh, we were made to visually recall were never disproven. The presence of these popularly forgotten, aggrieved women on national television shocked the system with a narrative zoom out, playing to latent guilt and dread of the American psyche. Uh, Later on, he goes on to say, does the exercise of power require the suppression of conscience? It is exceedingly important that we refrain from trying to answer a question like this too quickly. We don't have to be famous or hold elected office to meaningfully mull the social fact of access and how dear it is in every facet of life. Most of us learn to skim past certain facts, certain people, particular data we imagine might doom us in our effort to gain and maintain what we need, uh, what we believe we need to live, were we to register or acknowledge them aloud. 
We act, speak, and to a large degree, see and think within the lines dictated by the perceived necessity of maintaining our overhead, which often involves studiously avoiding upsetting the wrong people. So I'll stop there. That's an interesting dynamic, not just in his explanation as to trying to explain why did people back President Trump before he was elected during all of this, uh, but but kind of the power dynamics that a lot of us fall under, that when we're around people with power, with access, that we'll kind of look past things so as not to upset that access. This is a this is a kind of putting its finger, I would say, Ian, on something pretty, uh, pretty prevalent, but also pretty dangerous. Well, what what is dangerous about it then, Brian? You uh, you mentioned exactly what I was thinking of bringing it up. What makes it dangerous? Uh, I think any time we're willing to and taking it away from the president, but think we've talked how many times have we talked about powerful pastors um, that people have overlooked things that they did because of people wanted to have access to them. Uh, there's any number of R.V. Weinstein, whatever else it might be. I think when we're willing to overlook what maybe powerful or influential influential or famous people do so that we still have access and we're still kind of under their umbrella and, and like I said, have access to them. I think then we start as a society, we start to overlook things uh, that just feed into uh, that give them not, not just more power, but more license maybe to do things that we're overlooking. And so this yeah. is how people become abused and powerful people, whether it be, uh, you know, a politician, uh, a pastor, whether it be Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, this is how people like this go through life, uh, getting away with things. And then at the end, you start looking around going, how did they get away with this? How did that pastor that everybody said, oh, we knew that for 20 years? Like, how does that happen? Well, this is kind of how that happens. Yeah, I think the paragraph that the whole article kind of hangs on is right here. He says, I suspect that we become what we sit still for, what we play along with and what we abide in our attempts to access more perceived power and more alleged influence. We become what we normalize. That is such that's such a good sentence. It is. If association is currency, the trades we make to keep accruing it can be mistaken for leadership and prestige, and that which is truly essential is lost on us. A world of alleged security is gained, but only through the fritting, fritting away of the soul, that within each of us that is still capable of being moved, that which remains or reminds us that we are human beings among human beings, and that which, because we're all kin, is ready to risk something for someone else's good. If we don't nurture that part of ourselves, it leaves us. And to, and again, to me, and I, I tweeted this out when I first read it, we become what we normalize. Mm -hmm. I think it's true in politics. I think it's true in churches. I think, I think it's true probably in any and every organization. And I think how he connects that to, because sometimes I feel like what we normalize, we normalize out of convenience or apathy or just a lack of cognizance. We don't even realize that it's become normal because it's the water we swim in. You know, like I think it's Dallas Willard who says familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Sometimes we can become so familiar with something that it's, we're not even aware that it's there anymore. It's like, it's like terrible wallpaper in your basement, you know, like it's been there for 20 years. So you don't notice it, but for a new friend to come over to the house is going to go, whoa, mm -hmm. what's up with that wallpaper? You know, a new voice, <laughs> yeah. a new perspective can actually be really helpful in that. And I think that's part of what he's getting at. If, if the whole goal is just greater and greater prestige, greater, and greater influence, we will, we will trade parts of probably even who we actually are in order to get there. And that, that call that he puts there, like that, oh man, don't trade the parts of us that are capable of, of being moved of being stirred that remind us that we're, we're human. And I would love to know what you think of this. I know we're almost out of time, but when he says, if we don't nurture that part of ourselves, it leaves us. What do you think of that? 
it's this whole article is powerful. I'm glad that you passed it on. Uh, we we need to be able to stand up to things uh, that we know are wrong, but that might cost us a little bit. Like this one line right here, I just want to make sure we get it in. It says, if the price of admission within my peer group is the frequent suppression of my own conscience, I would like to argue that the price is too high. Like this whole article is stuff that we tell our children, but can become so hard to live by. But, you know, if we have access to that powerful pastor or that powerful CEO or this politician or this celebrity, whatever else it might be, what are you willing to give up to keep that access? And we have to recognize the danger of that and be willing to stand up for what we believe is right. And uh, and when we don't, we see a lot of what has happened in our culture around us. A lot of the abuses that have happened at the hands of celebrities uh, that have been left unchecked. And man, I, I would encourage people to give this article a read. It's really powerful. Yeah, totally agree. Coming up next, Caitlin Shess, who we've had on the show before, wrote an article at Relevant, why Christians can't just, quote, not care about politics. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Welcome to the show. Uh, you can find us all sorts of places. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Also, wherever it is you get podcasts. Any interaction there is really, really helpful. I'm going to sneak in a couple of holidays. I'm ready for I'm going to do a couple in this segment and a couple in the next. You ready? I am. Uh, it's National Play Monopoly Day, to which I say... No, thank you. No, thank um, you at all. That game takes like five <laughs> hours to play. <laughs> this is one of the longest ones I've seen. National Carbonated Beverage with Caffeine Day. So oh, okay. it's only, I mean, how, how many, I mean, whatever. <laughs> the fact that that's got its own day is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And lastly, at least for this segment, it's World Toilet Day. So I don't know how you celebrate, <laughs> but how, however you celebrate, Jesus is still on the throne. Anywho. Oh, no, no, no. No, that, that crossed the line. That was too nope, far. Nope, it was actually good. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and by good, you mean terrible and unforgivable. And uh, I totally agree. Okay, so so Caitlin Shesh, she wrote a book called The Liturgy of Politics, which personally has been super helpful. She's got some free chapters at her website, and she also had some prayers and practices for election season and election day. They are wonderful. They're so good. I cannot encourage you enough to go check them out. But she wrote this article for Relevant entitled Why Christians Can't Just, quote, Not Care About Politics. This is something you and I brought up a lot. It's a question that we tend to ask a lot of our guests because as pastors, so often, especially with the show, when we kind of, you know, dip a toe into political conversations, sometimes the pushback is, aren't you guys pastors? Why don't you just mm -hmm. talk about spiritual things? Why are you bothering bringing in politics into your show or conversations. You're not political scientists. Like you don't even, you're not even qualified to speak to this, to which I would say <laughs> you have a good point there, but Caitlin makes a great case in this article. Why as Christ followers, it, it really isn't an option to just, mm, I don't care about politics. I'm just going to focus on the gospel. So uh, why don't you get us into it a little bit? Yeah, she says American Christians have a long legacy of trying to parse out exactly what counts as political so that we can engage with the parts of the world that go untouched by the corrupting influences of politics. But politics color all aspects of our collective life. Disengaging from politics is impossible, and the effort to do so is an abdication of our responsibility as image bearers. I just think we need to sit in that first paragraph for a second. Like you just brought up. Uh, I do think uh, in all these interviews, all these many interviews we've done over the last six months, especially leading up to the election, I have appreciated you tend to ask the, the people the questions, hey, you know, 
we've been asked, you know, why do you engage in politics? And and really some insightful answers. But her concept here that uh, that not only is disengaging from politics impossible, but it's an abdication of our responsibility as image bearers. So it's not just us doing something that, yo, it's impossible to to not do, uh, but that's an abdication of our responsibility uh I find that uh, that's taking it to another level, like saying like, no, no, we have to engage. And I guess I would start by asking you, what, why do you think we get that pushback from people or other people get that pushback of just going, ah, just preach the gospel, uh, just go to po- uh, just ignore the politics? Why do you think that is even something people say within the church? I think a lot of it is probably deeper than people realize. It's an understanding that the gospel, the only power that the gospel has in my present moment is that I get to live with the knowledge of heaven when I die, which, you know, I believe is part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But Jesus, you know, speaks repeatedly about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom is here. And so if you just take red letter stuff, it seems that Jesus is actually also interested in how we order our lives, how we live our lives, how we uh, relate to one another. And this praying God's kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven isn't just the, hey, just hunker down here to, you know, for 80 to 90 years and then you get to go to the good place and not the bad place when you die. So often I think that's people's, Mm -hmm. that's the fullness of people's understanding of the gospel. And if that's the case, then it makes sense. Like why muddy the waters with, politics and all of these other things. It's all about, I get to go to heaven when I die. And I think that's part of it. A lot of it, you know, comes down to maybe not a misunderstanding of the gospel, but an incomplete understanding of the gospel Mm. to which I think that, as she says, that abdicating of responsibility seems almost inevitable based on that posture. Yeah. She goes on to say that the meaning of the word political is important here. It can signify statecraft, the exercise of coercive power for the sake of ordered governance. However, it also has a broader meaning. It signifies the means by which we shape our common life together. While the creational nature of statecraft has been debated by theologians since the patristic era, uh, there's no real disputing that humans are social creatures and that our common life together is an important theological concern. In this piece, politics will be used in this wider sense to refer to the various ways humans live together, exercise authority, and seek the common good. There it is. Uh, and, and I think that's important, right? I think another issue that we've done in our in as, as Christians, but also just as Americans is when we speak political, we mean Republican and Democrat, uh, the law. Like we, we have a very narrow view of what we mean when we're talking about politics, as opposed to this broader view, this wider sense, she says, that, that all politics is, is how are we going to order human life to, to live together, to have a what, how's authority work and, and what helps for the flourishing of all people? Instead, we've turned politics into this game, right? My side wins, your side wins, who wins? Uh, as opposed to, no, no, politics is about ordering our life. And as we see it in that wider sense, obviously, we as Christians should be uh, right in the middle of that discussion uh, and uh, and worried about it and and concerned and, and wanting to weigh into that. I think part of the problem here is that that narrow view of what politics is, of course, then you're like, well, let's keep ourselves out of that versus no, no, this is about How do we help all people flourish and how do we order our society? I think once you see politics in that way, I think it becomes obvious. Yeah, we need to be a part of that. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, too, that the other thing that often gets overlooked, I think, I think this is conjecture. But if if you don't believe that 
material life matters, mm-hmm. then it's going to be a, it's going to be a hard jump to actually get a Christ follower to believe that political engagement matters. Because if you know if this body is just a body and the earth is going to burn, well then yeah, it would make sense that you wouldn't want to engage in any kind of political, physical, material level. But I I actually don't think Scripture supports that at all, and I think. Some of what's been dangerous is a sort of, you know, what some theologians call kind of a disembodied evacuation model of redemption. <laughs> like, well, eventually we're just going to get sucked out of here. So it doesn't matter if we care for the earth. It doesn't matter if we care for each other. We know that we're supposed to, like, love God and love our neighbor. And so for many theological ideologies, that doesn't go past anything that looks like kindness or niceness. Like, if that's the extent of what it means to live incarnationally in the world, like, oh, we just are – nicer to people maybe than others are, which we also know isn't the case because we all have Twitter accounts and Facebook pages. There's a, (laughs) it's gotta, it's gotta be deeper and more robust than that. And I think Caitlin is one of the voices that I think is doing a better job than most to help us understand like, Hey, what I'm proposing here, it, it isn't some kind of like woke progressive ideology. It's actually deeply embedded in God's desire for human flourishing, like here and now the mm. kingdom of God here and now. And I encourage you not only to read this article, uh, but to read our whole book liturgy of politics by Caitlin Chess is, is really good. It came out this year from university press and I, I highly, highly recommend it. Any, any final thoughts in this regard, Brian? Yeah, I, I just wanted to read how she ends it. She says, our current engagements anticipate our future engagements, transcending the limitations of earthly political work and providing opportunities for us to witness to a larger project of human flourishing. Our work in the here and now is nurturing our political imaginations for the life to come. That your point that they're tied together. It's not yeah. some not some like, oh, I just get to go about to the by and by. Like it, these are tied together. And I think that's so important. Uh, you mentioned uh, before Caitlin has been on our show before talking about this book. I'd encourage people to go find that podcast. I don't remember what day it was, but you can go back and search. Uh, she's brilliant. And talking about this, I think in this day and time, uh, after this election that we've been through, kind of wrestling with who are we as a people, I think is is worthy of your time to pick up this book, listen to that podcast. Yep. Well said, man. Coming up next, we're going to hear from Andy Stanley. It's an article out of The Atlantic. The Evangelical Reckoning Begins. How's that for a tease? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today. But fret not, we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. If you want to find us, you can do that a couple of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is you get your podcast, you can subscribe, you can rate, you can review, you can text to a friend. And text it to a stranger. Just pick a number at random. You can show it to someone socially distanced. Whatever, whatever methodology you subscribe to. What I'm saying is, all of that really does help us out a whole bunch, and we're super grateful for all of you who have done that already. Uh, before we get into this last article from Andy Stanley, there's a there's a couple of holidays I kept off, Brian. First, it's National Rural Health Day. Okay. <laughs> Rural Health Day. Are we? Yeah, that's a, that's about that's about right reaction. Yep. Yep. Are we like are we celebrating the health of those who live in the rural areas or are we literally wanting the health of the rural areas? I don't know what I'm celebrating. I, I, I couldn't tell you. All I have are the words on my screen right now. It's also <laughs> uh, the Great American Smokeout, which I think I think has to do with quitting smoking, actually. I think, I think so that's too. where that comes from. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then Today the last day. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, very inspiring, Brian. <laughs> lastly, it is International Men's Day. So Happy any big day. plans? 
<laughs> Any big plans? No, none at all. And uh, I'll, your card is in the mail. It's in the mail. It's coming. Oh, wow. Thanks. I look forward to that. Um, Andy Stanley, you mentioned this during the break. He's been putting himself out there a whole lot more lately. I bet you a lot of it has to do with, you know, they were one of the first to kind of yes. uh, make a make a big sweeping decision to, to not be meeting till January at the earliest, which I do wonder if that will be changing or not. But I think he's mm-hmm. he's already he's very well known. He's very influential. But I feel like articles in The Atlantic seem fairly new for him, at least with this level of frequency. And so he wrote an article it simply reads, the evangelical reckoning begins. Andy Stanley, the pastor of one of the largest megachurches in the country, ponders the future of an influential corner of American Christianity. This is from Emma Green just a couple of days ago. What is happening here in this article? I think you're getting at it why we're hearing from Andy Stanley more. I do think uh, – so like you said, he's the first one. He was kind of the the trailblazer of we're not opening for the rest of the year. And he says, never once did I hear we're upset because we miss coming to church. Uh, He instead heard a lot of we're upset because you bought into a political agenda. We're upset because you believe the Mm. Democrats narrative. And I think that set something off in him a little bit. So he goes on to describe his ministry, 37,000 adults and children each Sunday, uh, second in size to only Joel Osteen's, it says here, Houston Empire, according to some. Uh, But it describes his church a little bit. It says uh, that that. Uh, Brian uh, Houston. Oh, no. Sam Collier, a black pastor and friend of Stanley's who's about to open Atlanta's first branch of Hillsong, uh, told him that North Point is like, quote, the Christian gap. (laughs) So uh, Hmm. it does say the rise of Donald Trump, however, has made it harder than ever to separate evangelicalism for politics. And so Stanley goes on to say his dad, Charles Stanley, very well known. uh, Andy Stanley said that that he grew up in a very, very right leaning environment, home, church and everything, and that he saw some of the hypocrisy to that and some of the problems. And so I think Stanley sees what's going on around him. And he's saying that we as evangelicals are facing a bit of a reckoning, like it, whether it be uh, post Trump here and it, what's it going to look like in the kind of the next uh, under the Biden administration, that, that there's something, there's been damage done to the evangelical brand. And if you could see me right now, you'd see that I'm giving the air quotes to brand and to a lot of the leaders of that brand. And Andy Stanley's trying to get out in front of it and say, listen, I think there's a reckoning coming and that we kind of have some choices to make here as evangelicals that are either going to um, allow us to to make a big difference in the world or it's going to kind of uh, kind of push us a different way. And, and I think he's trying to kind of um, sound that trumpet right now and call evangelicalism to something uh, to a certain direction here. Well, and this is part of, I think, where we've seen some pushback on social media since this was posted. It says Stanley declined to join his friend in ministry on the Trump train, waving them off when they texted selfies from Trump's tower. But neither has he joined the evangelical resistance remaining notably quiet at times when other prominent conservative Christian leaders have spoken out. We've mentioned a number of those leaders who have spoken out. I'm curious, Brian, where where do you land in all of that? Does Andy Stanley have a responsibility in your mind to be more outspoken, or is that wisdom to stay more quiet regarding some of those conversations? And by quiet, I mean, you know, not posting online. He, he might be having, he for all we know, he could be having conversations with hundreds of people about these things that, you know, are maybe more a part of his inner circle or at least a part of his community. So just because we're not seeing things on Facebook or Twitter doesn't mean he's remaining silent, but I'd, I'd be curious to know what you, uh, what you think about that. Yeah. And again, it's kind of interesting. It appears that he's being a little bit less silent. I'm a, uh, 
uh, again, I, I, I'm okay with somebody being silent on social media, right? And to speak into the things and the spots where he thinks he needs to speak in. Now, it is hard. I've never lived the life of uh, you know, leading one of the biggest churches in the country. And what does that bring with it? Do the Andy Stanleys and the Rick Warrens and the, you know, whoever else, Matt Chandlers, do they have an obligation to speak in on everything? Um, because uh, I can understand saying, you know what, I'm I'm going to sit this one out of this one. But but um, I, it is interesting to me. And, and I, I'd, I'd love to know what you think about that question that you asked me. But I also do think it's interesting. He does seem to be going uh, to becoming a little more outspoken. And I think he's trying to say, you know what, I'm oh, I'm right leaning. I've always been right leaning. I'm uncomfortable with the progressive side of of Christianity, but I'm also uncomfortable with the very right side of Christianity. I think that's the path he's trying to take here. Like I'm He's probably moderately right is what I would guess. And he's trying to say, I think there's a lot of us in that camp and and here's what that means. And and he's trying to just kind of call the church to where he thinks the church is missing to what he's passionate about. Uh, and yeah, with that might come not speaking out on everything. I'm not sure. I, I don't have a great answer to that. What do you think? Do you think it's a misstep for him not to speak out on the bigger cultural issues of the day? I mean, I think what he says here is not that I don't have opinions. It's more that people don't come to church to hear my opinions. Um, mm. What? Okay, I'll I'll say two things. One, that might fit the category of a logical fallacy. There is a certain aspect, like it, it is a couple of steps removed from a sort of the Bible says that that settles it mentality. Like I think, and I think you would probably agree with this. Any biblical teaching is it to some degree biblical interpretation, which is to some degree your opinion on what you think the text actually says it means based on, you know, research and larger bodies of evidence. And I'm, and I'm not, I, I, I think he's diligent in all of those areas. It is always interesting though, to me when people are like, Oh, they, they're not coming to church to hear my opinion. Like, well, your opinion isn't divorced entirely of the work of pastoring and preaching. That's, that's inextricable in, in my mind, but I get what he's saying. And I do think that other pastors maybe have taken the bait uh, with regards to weighing in on everything that happens all the time and almost feel like it's a responsibility. I think that's unwise too. And you can get really, you can get caught in whether it's like an addictive dopamine hit kind of a thing or in feeling like, well, that's my role now. That's my niche is I have to, I'm the guy that always weighs in every time something happens. And that not only can be exhausting, but I, I think it, it can, it can harm the work of a pastor in ways that are probably pretty long lasting, even if they're right. And I think that's what's tricky. But I get I get why some people might be pushing back, because as we've talked about a number of times on the show, in some cases, a position of silence is a position of privilege. You have the freedom to not weigh in on this because maybe arguably it doesn't actually affect you. But those of us over here that are being deeply affected or burdened by whatever subject matter is in question. Um, I, I could see why there would be pushback. Do you, do you have any thoughts in that regard before we wrap? I can totally see it. And and I do want to uh, say that maybe silence on social media is in silence within the church. Right. Who knows what he's saying within his church. And uh, it's, it's a line that I struggle with because I tend to be quiet on some of these things, but also you just never know, especially in this world that we live in where there's another topic each day. Uh, you and I have talked about that on air and off, right? Like I don't, I don't know. I think sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I get it wrong. When do you remain silent? When do you talk? And uh, it is a hard line. I Again, I'll close by saying I'm interested to see kind of this next iteration, what feels like a next iteration of Andy Stanley, where there seems to be a little bit more uh, outspokenness and kind of calling Chris, calling evangelicalism in a certain path. I'm, I'm interested to see where Andy Stanley goes here in the coming years. 
Yeah, likewise, man. And that's you know, up at our Facebook page. We'd love to know what do you think? Do you agree with some of it? Disagree with some of it? Where do you land? You can weigh in in the comment section or shoot us a message. That's over at the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And with that, today is in the books. We have one more day for this week. We'll be with you all tomorrow, 4 to 6 p.m. We hope that you'll join us. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like.